If you have a Bible, please take it out and open it to Mark chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, all you have to do is raise your hand and an usher will let you borrow one of ours. If you don't own one, please keep it. Please read it and apply it to your life. But if you do own one, you can leave it in your seat when you are finished. Mark chapter 11 will be in verses 1 to 25. Mark 11, 1 to 25. Please read along silently as I read aloud. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went, out, he, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went to the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, they were passing by. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, If anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. This is the word of God. Church, if you've been with us for a while, we have been walking through Mark, it seems like forever in some ways, but also it's been kind of quick. We are here now in our last series in Mark. The book has 16 chapters. We're starting here in chapter 11. You'll notice we'll be taking some of these as a chunk. We do that because we want you to see this big picture in Mark. The very first verse of Mark tells us that Mark wants us to see Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. That's who he wants us to see. That's what the whole book is about. And since two and a half chapters ago, about middle of chapter 8, Jesus had been heading to Jerusalem. We've been on the way, and in today's passage, he finally gets there. Now the disciples were hoping all along the way that when Jesus got to Jerusalem, this was going to be the time that he would show the world his glory. 
He was going to show everyone that he was the Messiah and he was going to take over in power and it was going to be this great day. But Jesus is actually more than the disciples hoped. You see, Mark does not focus just on Jesus' return to the city, but on Jesus coming to the temple as the Lord of the temple. We're going to look back at this passage in sections today. And the first section we're going to look at is verses 1 through 11. And we're going to call this section Plastic Fruit. Plastic Fruit. It says, When they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one else has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here right away. So they do. And all of that happens. Whether you're a churchgoer or not, this might be a familiar story. This is one that gets told a lot right before Easter, because people are talking um, the week before. You got the Palm Sunday, and people are waving palm branches. Anybody ever been in a church that does that? You actually had palm branches? I, I saw somebody, like, pulling one out of their purses now. Like, is it time? Like, No. <laughs> I mean, we can if you want, but you don't have to. Um, This is a pretty common story. Mark being the shortest gospel, a lot of people think this is probably the first of the four gospels written. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, He's really coming at this differently than Matthew and Luke do. He, he again, Mark always says immediately, immediately, just getting on to the next thing. And here, his point is not so much about the crowd and what they're saying. You may have heard this said, you know, one week they're saying Hosanna, the next week they're saying crucify him. And like, yeah, maybe it was the same crowd. We're not exactly sure. But his point here is more focusing on Jesus going to the temple. Because here for the next few chapters, chapters 11, 12, and 13, Mark is going to show that Jesus is the Lord of the temple. And here he's going to show that this crowd on the way in doesn't really get who Jesus is. It says they brought the donkey to Jesus, this is verse 7, and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the field. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Heavily here, they are quoting Psalm 118, and they're shouting this shout of praise, and you think, how do they not get it? They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But look in verse 10. It says, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, which is just a weird phrase. That's not really a scriptural phrase. It sounds kind of scriptural because we're used to hearing son of David. Uh, Just several weeks ago, Philip uh, showed us where blind Bartimaeus was healed, and that's what he said. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But here we see an odd phrase, one that's not a quote from Psalm 118, one that the crowd's kind of putting in for themselves, and it shows that while they're excited about Jesus and they know something's going on, they're not really getting it. What's really interesting about this, remember for chapters now, we've been building up to Jesus coming to Jerusalem. We've seen the disciples arguing over who's going to sit at your right hand, who's going to sit at your left, who's going to be in power with you, who's the greatest in the kingdom, who gets to be great with you, Jesus. This is going to be a huge day. And he enters in and they're all shouting. And then it says he went to Jerusalem into the temple. And after looking around at everything, since it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. The most anticlimactic thing ever. Y'all, this is like if you have the best processional at a wedding. you got everybody coming down. They're playing all the favorite songs, all perfect. And you get up there and the person doing the wedding just blows it. Nothing happens. They come in, there's all this shouting, and nothing happens because these people did not get who Jesus yet was. I call this section plastic fruit today because 
we see some fruit, what appears to be fruit, the shouting of Hosanna, the celebration of Jesus, but it appears to be false. I'm just going to be honest with you all. If you have plastic fruit in your house, I'm not, I don't mean to offend you or anything like that. Plastic fruit is one of those things in the world that just does not make sense to me. I don't understand. It's like throw pillows. Can I get an amen any guys in the house? Throw pillows. Why do we need 27 on the bed? We literally just moved them so that we can go to bed. But one thing's for sure, when we go to at home over here, we need another one. That's what I know. Plastic fruit is like throw pillows to me, y'all. It, it, sometimes it looks so real and so appetizing, and then you touch it, and you're like disappointed. You ever been there? You're like, oh man, I'm about to get a strawberry. Oh. And your whole day's ruined. You're like, he's a little emotional if his whole day's ruined. I'm just telling y'all, plastic fruit does not make sense to me. And this huge celebration for Jesus to me is similar to that. All these hosannas and these shouts. But they're missing something. I think oftentimes in our, in our churches today, maybe this is where we are. We're shouting familiar church phrases. We may even be saying words of scripture, but we don't know what they mean. We're singing songs like we just sang. Say, here I raise my Ebenezer. I'm not going to have you show your hands, but who knows what that means. It's a scriptural reference. It's a very beautiful reference, if you understand it. Look that up later. There's your homework. Go Google that. Here I raise my Ebenezer. It's a beautiful line. But what does it mean? Do we just throw around these phrases? Y'all, Christianese is a thing. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, somebody's like, yes, it is. Y'all have been saying all kinds of stuff that nobody says when they leave here, and nobody can explain what they actually mean, and they're just phrases we use, right? These people, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but they didn't quite get it because it was false fruit. It's plastic fruit. And Jesus, this is what, what, what he's doing here, is he's really setting up what's about to happen in the temple. Mark includes this here because he's showing us Something major that's going to happen in the temple. Now, in the rest of this passage, verses 12 through 25, we're going to see something cool that Mark does. If you haven't read the book of Mark before, you can go back through and read it on your own. Several times, Mark uses what we call the sandwich. We've pointed out a little bit before. He'll have a teaching, and then something will happen, and he'll have another teaching, and both teachings kind of point to what's going on and help explain each other. Okay? So we're going to see that here. That's going to be verses 12 through 25 as a whole. But just in verses 12 through 19, we're going to see missing fruit. We saw plastic fruit, now we have missing fruit. In verse 12 it says, The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went out to find if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. If you are not paying attention right now, we just read some weird words. Because we just had Jesus riding in on this colt, and it's like fulfilling prophecy, and people are yelling Hosanna, and it's something we celebrate on Palm Sunday every year. And now Jesus is mad at a tree. Because man, trees, right? No, some of y'all in here are probably like all about the environment, and you're like, why is Jesus angry at this tree? And I just need you to take a breath and calm down. Because he's actually making a point. And we're going to see that kind of flesh itself out a little bit. But here he does, in fact, curse the tree. I like that he sees it in the distance. If you go to Israel today, still, and this would have been at the time too, there are fig trees everywhere. But for some reason, he eyes this one in the distance and goes up to it to see if there's anything on it. It says he found nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. Now, it says for it was not in season for figs. You're like, well, if it wasn't in season, why was he looking for figs? There are actually these little baby figs that you can get earlier in the season, before they're fully ripe, that some people like to go and just pick off and eat. 
And that's probably what Jesus was looking for. Usually if there are leaves, there can be those little baby figs. You can go get them. This is a true thing. You can still find this out today. So Jesus, when he looks and sees there aren't any, he curses this tree for not doing what it's supposed to do. He finds nothing but leaves. And leaves are not what he was wanting. Leaves do not satisfy. Leaves are not what this fig tree is supposed to be producing alone. The passage continues. They came to Jerusalem, and he went to the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. Some of you are so pumped right now because this is your favorite Jesus. You're like, yes, Jesus throwing people out of church. Calm down a little bit. Um, if you have a discernment blog or you're that person's like, I get online every day and call out people's theology and it's based on this right here because some people need to be told, stop, repent. That's not what this is about. This is also a rare thing for Jesus. Normally we see him with compassion and meekness and humility. Even here, it doesn't necessarily say that he's angry, though I do think that's probably a fair thing to think. Um, what is happening is he goes into the temple area the part where there are supposed to be Jews and Gentiles, there's a section of the temple that that could be, and he finds people more focused on the commerce than on the worship. Now that doesn't sound like church today at all, does it? We could just stop right there and talk about it for a while, but Philip already offended everybody with the gospel race politics stuff, so we'll keep going with this. He overturned the tables of the money changers. I do want to point out, while I'm kind of pulling you back on this some, that's a pretty dramatic thing to do. You start turning tables over, you're getting people's attention. You're running them out, not letting them carry any goods through. Understand, if Gentiles were coming in, they're likely coming from out of town to Jerusalem. So they were coming to buy things that they could sacrifice in the temple. And Jesus is saying, this is not what this is about. And he starts teaching them scripture. He says he was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's Isaiah 56, 7. He says, but you have made it a den of thieves, quoting Jeremiah 7, 11. If you want to see how kind of harsh Jesus was being, go read Jeremiah 7 and 8, because that is calling down a curse on a cult. And Jesus references that same thing for these people in the temple, these temple leaders. This would be like if he came in here right now and started yelling at Philip and me and throwing us out of here. This is intense, y'all. Calling down a curse, saying, you've made this a den of thieves. Notice what he said from Isaiah, though. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. What a hopeful word. This Messiah who's coming to Jerusalem with all these Israelites coming out and saying, Hosanna, notice specifically what they said again. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They're worried about the Jewish people only. They're worried about their own people. And here this says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus comes into the temple as the Lord of the temple. And he's turning everything upside down. Now the Bible I'm using, and the Bible you're using may say the same thing. It has a heading here that actually says, cleansing the temple. You may have heard this before. Jesus cleanses the temple. And that's true in the sense that he purifies it, but it's, it's really more of a clearing of the temple. He's not just here to wash the temple. He's not just here to restore the temple. Do you understand? From here and for these next several chapters, Mark does not emphasize the restoration of the temple, but the replacement of the temple with Jesus. 
In chapter 15, verse 38, when Jesus is on the cross, actually when he dies, Mark records in that single verse that the veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if you're here today and you don't know much about the Bible, that doesn't mean a lot to you. But first of all, those veils would have been really thick. We're not talking about like paper or some kind of cheap cloth. We're talking multiple threads, something, you know, that they would, if you're ripping it, it's going to be like one of those power team shows. Have you ever seen those things? They just have like really strong people come and rip phone books and stuff. And you're like, man, this doesn't look that hard. And then you try to do it and you're like, maybe it's just me. I've always had the arms of a thinking man. But the veil, just because Jesus dies, is torn in two. And what does that show us? What does that symbolize? We now have access to God. You see, the temple represented the presence of God among the people. And the centermost part of the temple had the Holy of Holies. And only once a year could the high priest go in and make sacrifices in there, okay? Only once a year on the Day of Atonement. You read about this in Leviticus? Some of y'all are like, I'm not reading Leviticus. You should sometime. That's what's going on in Leviticus. When Jesus dies, he atones for the sins of all his people. And that veil is torn in two because now anyone who has faith in him has access to God and doesn't need to go through the temple sacrifices anymore. Jesus is the temple. He is the presence of God among us and in us. And all who are now in him carry the presence of God with them as the Spirit of God indwells us. I said that pretty fast. Maybe I didn't catch that. Jesus is the new temple. We get that? This is God come to us. This represents God's presence with us. God is not a God who saw us in our sin and said, good luck, hope you figure it out. He came after us to get us. His presence comes down to us, and once we are united with Christ by faith, we are in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit of God, and we too can be called the temple as we share in Christ. Because now God goes with us. Church, the Lord is with you now. He is with you tomorrow. And what Jesus is doing here in redefining, reestablishing, restoring the temple, replacing the temple, is pointing the temple to himself. Remember, everything in the Law and the Prophets, everything of the Old Testament, everything in the New Testament, everything in the Bible finds its true meaning in Christ. And here, he's showing the temple is about him and his kingdom is for all nations. I love that. My house will be called a, prayer, a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Do you remember what Jesus said before about the fig tree? It says there in verse 13, he found nothing but leaves. So he comes into the temple and he doesn't find the fruit he's looking for. He finds nothing but leaves. He finds people who are totally missing the mark. They're looking for him to come be the Messiah. They were probably expecting the temple leaders to be on his side and high-fiving him and celebrating. But Jesus instead comes in and starts turning over tables and teaching them from their own scriptures that you've missed it. That everything unites in him. And he makes people so mad. Verse 18 says, The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. That's actually Mark using the exact same phrase he used way back in chapter 1 about people being astonished at Jesus' authority and teaching. We should also stand astonished 
at his authority and teaching. These chief priests and scribes, though, they hear this and they want to kill him. Again, these are the chief priests and the scribes in the temple wanting to kill Jesus. The irony here, everyone, is that in killing Jesus, they're actually fulfilling what he's talking about. Because it's in his death that he becomes a sacrifice once and for all. For all who will trust in his name, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. We don't have to make sacrifices anymore. I've joked about that before here at this church, but y'all, I'm so thankful for that. It would be so terrible if I had to be a scribe or a Pharisee here and you had to like bring goats up and maybe pouring out their blood all over the stage and stuff. No, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for getting me out of that. Thank you for being our sacrifice so that we don't have to go through another priest, but he is our prophet, priest, and king that gives us full access to God. But when he comes in the temple... Just like with the fig tree, he finds nothing but leaves. And he calls down a curse on them. Did you know in all four Gospels, that curse on the fig tree is the only destructive miracle that God does? I say in the four Gospels, because in the Old Testament, obviously you've got the flood and lots of things like that, fire coming down from heaven. This is the only one we get. Jesus curses a fig tree to make a point about the temple and about who he is. And Jesus in his people is looking for fruit, not just leaves. In verses 20 through 25, he lays out what we'll look at as the fruit of faith. The fruit of faith. It says, early in the morning as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Now that seems way out of the blue if we don't get that this is what Jesus saw missing from the temple. People weren't interested in faith in God. They weren't interested in God at all. They were interested in coming in and making some money. We would never do that in churches today, I'm sure. I'm sure none of us came today looking to network or... Anything like that. We would never come before God with wrong intentions, would we? But here, Peter notices the tree, and Jesus says, Have faith in God. Now, we've talked about faith a lot throughout Mark because it comes up a lot. Faith is this trusting, this full reliance on Jesus. It's not just believing or saying that He exists. It is believing that he is who he says he is and trusting his finished work through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. It's saying, Jesus, you are the Lord, the Son of God, and I will follow you. And it's saying, Jesus, only because of your sinless life and your substitutionary death and your victorious resurrection can I stand before God and have life eternal. That is faith in God. That is faith in Jesus. Jesus says in other passages, no one comes to the Father except through him. So you can't say I have faith in God and not have faith in Jesus. So in talking about the tree, now he's going to tell two things about this fruit of faith. He's going to talk about prayer and he's going to talk about forgiveness. I know those are two things we just all have perfectly and none of us need to work on either of those things, right? Okay, yeah, me too. Verse 23, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. We're just going to let that one breathe for a second. 
Because I know a verse that says stuff like that makes everybody in the room uncomfortable. Philip already said we got our charismaniacs and our frozen chosen, right? Our charismaniacs are like, that's right, start calling stuff down right now, name it and claim it. And our frozen chosen are like, if you do that, I'm leaving. (laughs) Quietly and respectfully. The truth here is, folks, if we are in Christ and we have faith in God, which we notice is a precursor, then we will be praying things according to his will in which we should pray boldly. You want to know the kinds of things you can pray and should pray? You should pray for your friends and neighbors and family members to come and know the Lord, just like we're asking you to do with those little cards in your seats. See, pretty cool how that all ties in. We've just been preaching through Mark. That wasn't even planned. We can boldly go to the throne for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I've heard the question before that if God answered every prayer you prayed this last week, would anyone be saved? Would anyone have moved from death to life? And y'all, the first time I heard that, the reason I remember is because I was convicted. Because mine was a zero. So now, I guarantee you, I'm praying for people's salvation. (laughs) I'm praying for people by name. Not just, Lord, just bring people to yourself. Lord, bring this cousin. Bring this coworker. I'm not saying names from the pulpit because this will be on recording and stuff later. We want to pray by name. If that makes you uncomfortable and you say, well, I'm not really for that. Y'all, if we are not concerned for the salvation of our neighbors and our friends and our family, then we don't get the gospel. We don't get it. If we have no concern for mission, we have missed who God is and what it means to be made right with him through Jesus. What it means to now live in light of the cross, being part of his kingdom work. So when you read this and you say, well, I just want to ask him, you know, that I would win the lottery. You think he'll let me do that? Maybe. Probably not. (laughs) I feel safe saying that, knowing the odds on that kind of stuff. But y'all, just in a few chapters from now, we're going to find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he's arrested. Jesus, the Son of God, the sinless man, praying to the Father. And what does he pray? Lord, let this cup pass from me. And y'all, that's such a relatable prayer, right? Lord, let this cup pass from me, but then what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. Do we pray that? Do we pray that confidently? Lord, I am going to bring you this supplication because this is what I want to happen, and if this is within your will, God, make this happen. I encourage you all, if you start praying for people to come to know the Lord, you start praying big prayers like that, that someone would go from death and sin to life in Christ, start keeping track of when God answers those prayers. Because a year from now, when you look back on answered prayers, you will be astonished. Sadly, we will be astonished because we don't actually expect God to hear us. Jesus tells his disciples, have faith in God. And he emphasizes that by saying, truly, I tell you. And he starts talking about moving mountains. And he starts talking about praying big, God-sized, kingdom-sized prayers. And then we don't even pray much less pray these kind of prayers. If we are in Christ, we should long to pray. Because Jesus has ushered us into the presence of God, because he is the new temple, we can now come before the God of the universe who holds all things together and he hears us. Y'all, I get annoyed about some of the most random things. You probably do too. Yesterday, we let our little dog out to go to the restroom let it back in, and guess what else got in the house? A little buzzing gnat. 
Maybe a mosquito, I don't know. All I know is every time I went by my head, I heard Y'all ever get that? And I'm sitting there like And I just get super annoyed. And I let that just totally take over my mind of like, oh, life is terrible. (laughs) And then when I pray, little Jake who's worried about a buzzing fly, God hears my prayers because of Jesus. Grace every time we go to the throne. There's grace and mercy every time we will just speak to him. We'll let our hearts speak to him. We'll let him speak to us through his word. Please pray for people to come to know the Lord. People say all the time, man, I just, I want to see God do something big in Charleston. Have you prayed for that? Man, I see Jesus saying this will be a house of prayer for all nations. I love being part of the church, y'all, because something I don't see in a lot of churches is prayer at all. You ever visit a church, you're 45 minutes in and no one's prayed? Oh, the Father hears us as Jesus makes intercession for us at his right hand. Let's take advantage of that and let's go to the throne to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 25 says, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. This could be a whole other sermon. We won't do it today. But I think we know it could be. When you came to church today, maybe you celebrated the fact that you get forgiveness in God. Maybe I did that. We we say, yes, God, in Christ we have forgiveness. Amen. I can confess my sins be forgiven. But have we thought that the people that offend us, we also need to forgive? Maybe we have prayed big things. Have we forgiven others before we've approached the throne of God? Do we ask for God to search our hearts and show us people we need to forgive? Forgiveness is one of those things a lot easier to preach on, a lot easier to talk about than it is to do. Because what do we want to say in church? Well, I forgive, but I won't forget. And you get lots of, hey, hey, man, hallelujah, preacher. It's not how God forgives. And this says, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. I'm so glad that God does not say, I'm going to forgive you, but I'm not going to forget. I'm glad that it says he cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. And that's how we're to forgive other people. I'm going to use a word that's a little divisive for people who have strong opinions on worship songs. But y'all, that's a reckless thing to do. Because people will take advantage of you. If you forgive like that. If you love like that. But Jesus doesn't say, unless they take advantage of you, then don't forgive them. He doesn't say that. He says, forgive them. And then he models this on the cross. And says, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that is what he calls us to do. A lot of times, people will read scripture about forgiveness and be like, Ooh, I'm glad God isn't asking me to do that. He is. If you are in Christ, God expects you to forgive as he does, to be as gracious as he is. 
We will never achieve it perfectly in this life, but surely we can grow in this. Surely this is an area, Christians, that we can grow to forgive. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're probably like, man, this is the best sermon I've ever heard. He's telling these Christians to get it together and pray for other people and forgive them. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I need you to know there's forgiveness for you too. There's forgiveness for you too. Because you see, we all need forgiveness from God because we've all rebelled against Him. We've all sought our own, our own ways. And when God searches our hearts apart from Christ, person, unbeliever, friend who is skeptical about Christianity, when God searches your heart, He doesn't find fruit, He finds nothing but leaves. Church goer, if you do not actually know Christ, if you do not find joy in the gospel, if your life has not been transformed and this is just something you do, you may have leaves, but it's nothing but leaves. There may be signs that show that you bear fruit, but is it real fruit? I'm glad to say that I do think there are multiple Christians in this room who do know the Lord, who are bearing fruit. They tell me about it like it's almost nothing. There's things that God's doing in their life, and I'm like, man, that's awesome. So many of you encourage me more than you know. I love hearing these stories we're showing of people going and sharing the faith. And we say, well, we want to see fruit. We want to see people come to the Lord. Absolutely, but know that it's fruit in your life if you are faithfully sharing the gospel. We plant and water. God gives the growth. Are we faithfully sharing the gospel, though? Is that fruit present in your life? Is the fruit of the Spirit present in your life. One day, all of us, each of us on our own, will stand before God and we will answer for everything that we've ever thought and said and done. And if we say, Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name. Lord, Lord, I I went to church. Lord, Lord, I filled out the who's your one card but there's no fruit in our lives. And it's nothing but leaves. But if, if by God's grace, when we hear the gospel, our affections are stirred once again to who God is and what he's done through Jesus. If when we sin, we run back to the throne, knowing that Jesus gives us full access as the new temple to God, knowing that we can come back and fall at his feet and say, God, I have nothing of myself to bring simply to the cross I cling. If that is our heart's cry and that shows up in the fruit of loving our neighbors, of forgiving people and proclaiming the gospel and praying big God-sized prayers that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, if that fruit is present, then praise the Lord. We are in Christ. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in him. We have hope in Jesus, but church, I do hope you will look at your own life and inspect for fruit. If it's nothing but leaves, guess what? You can repent today. It's not too late. There's hope for you now. You don't have to wallow in your sin. You don't have to wallow in guilt. We can run to God in joy because we have a new temple who ushers us into the presence of God. I hope you'll do that today.